Good evening to you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Just a reminder that next Sunday night, we're going to be um, partaking in uh, two of the ordinances of Jesus, and uh, we'll have a water baptism at this time, next Sunday evening, as well as the Lord's Supper. And it's always a special time. Weather is nice, it turns, and well, who knows what the weather will be in a week. Some of you do, but I don't. And um, so, but it's always a great time of fellowship. That's what's happening. If you've never been water baptized, that is a command. And uh, as a Christian, and there's reasons for it, and we'll talk about the reasons uh, for that before we water baptize, but enough for you to be born again and come and, and to be water baptized that night. As we come here to uh, chapter uh, 21, it's important, I think, as so often is the case with the Bible, to, to understand a little bit about the context of the teaching that Jesus gives here. You remember last time we were together, that Jesus had made, even the time prior to that, Jesus had made His triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem on the day that Daniel had said that the Messiah would come and be revealed uh, to the nation itself. And the response of the nation of Israel was a proverbial yawn, by and large. And uh, Jesus wept over the city, and He spoke about, as He wept over the terrible uh, uh, difficulties that were going to come to the Jewish people, come to the city of uh, Jerusalem, and also that the temple, uh, what would happen to the temple by virtue of the fact that they did not know this their day. And then right on the heels of that, uh, Jesus clears the temple for the second time as they were making merchandise of the house of God, which was to be a house of prayer. And then the following day as Jesus is teaching uh, three of the major sects of Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians all come on the scene in an attempt to trap Jesus with these questions in order to uh, get Him to make a mistake in His teaching or to say something that would split uh, the very uh, committed following that He had among the common people. And they did this publicly with the intent of publicly humiliating him in some way. They thought their questions were so clever. Um, and uh, if you've ever seen that old Far Side uh, cartoon where God is playing Jeopardy, and uh, he's got like a million points, and the other two contestants have the, It's really tough to trap God on anything. The Bible says he knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our thoughts afar off. So how, what kind of an advantage is that? So. Uh, but Jesus ends up publicly uh, uh, humbling them. And, and so all of this hardship, Jesus knows what's right around the corner from Him now, just about three days away are all the events of the morning of His crucifixion and the, then the crucifixion uh, itself. And uh, it appears that Jesus then left the um, area probably where he was teaching was probably in the area of the court of the Gentiles where anyone could come and listen to him there at the temple, makes his way then into the court of the women and then toward the inner court related to the temple. And, uh, and he is sorely in need of uh, some encouragement and, uh, in, in a sense. And here he is about to give his life for the 
sins of the world for our forgiveness, and again, uh, very little enthusiasm around him. He's still the attempt to murder him, still the attempt to trap him. And, uh, and so his heart is filled with these kind of things. And then this incredible encouragement uh, occurs before his eyes in the person of this widow who gave her uh, two mites at the temple. And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And uh, the other Gospels tells us they were putting great sums of money into the treasury. And then he saw a certain poor widow. Now that's quite a combination. A widow uh, is, is in the ancient world for a wife to outlive the husband would almost always make you very, very, uh, uh, you almost predestined to poverty and certainly one of the most powerless people in the culture. And, and sure enough, she was bearing the consequences of this. She was poor and she put uh, in two mites uh, into the uh, uh, into the treasury there. There were, as a part of the treasury associated with the temple, there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles for giving uh, offerings. And the trumpets were uh, called trumpets, and, and uh, presumably uh, the narrow opening was at the top. There was no paper money in those days, and uh, so it was all coinage, and the money would then go in the top and down into the bottom. And each one of the 13 different trumpets would have a different designation, or some of them at least had a designation, and some were probably just general. But if you wanted to dedicate and give money toward um, the sacrifices that were going to be sacrificed daily at the temple or for uh, any of the perfumes or the grains or anything like that that were involved in that, the wood that was in, involved um, in, in that, or just to come and, and put money in, in the receptacle uh, offering uh, just as an expression of your love toward the Lord. And so this is what he's watching. Uh, all of this is going on. And um, there's something uh, fascinating about watching people. They're, it's about the most interesting thing that you can do in life, for better or for worse. Interesting is a qualified uh, term. But he's watching this. And, um, and he isn't just kind of people watching here. He's He's uh, 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 looking at, at, at how people are giving to God in this, this area of worship called giving. And as he sat on the bench there, we're told that he watched how much, uh, he watched how the people put uh, money into the treasury. And so very significantly, he, he tells us that the rich uh, put in uh, large amounts of money. They put in uh, much. And here is this little widow woman who puts in uh, two mites. Two mites, a mite was the smallest coin that was uh, available in those days. And it was uh, like a half a penny or something like that. And if you, if you uh, do uh, work it for inflation, uh, you know, for, uh, for today and, and, and all, she would be giving the equivalent of something like, uh, in our culture, for what we would make, she, you know, she gave about a dollar uh, fifty, but that dollar fifty uh, was something that cut into her livelihood. So she wasn't making much money, and probably those two mites came out of the very money that she had earned that day. But it was an expression of her heart of love toward God, 
and an expression of worship toward God. And I think that when Jesus saw that, the action of this, uh, this widow, uh, poor widow woman making that offering, uh, he looked at her and saw a kindred spirit in her. This is someone who loves God. This is someone who loves what God is, is doing in, in the world. This is someone who is uh, willing to sacrifice related to the kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus was about to make the ultimate sacrifice, but it was a, a great encouragement to, uh, um, to him. I'll never forget, I've mentioned it uh, uh, maybe one time, uh, before, but when the church was first starting, we were down on level and behind, uh, behind the uh, what used to be the Daly's restaurant. There, it's been many, many things in years past, and uh, we were meeting in a in a deli hall that was there, and uh, we were just starting out, and and good things were happening there. And I remember that uh, Marty Lewis. She was not Marty Lewis then. She wasn't married to Dan yet. And one time she came on a Sunday morning and uh, we were serving coffee and uh, as a part of the after-service refreshment and fellowship and all. And she brought these uh, little holders that were plastic and you could put a, a, a disposable cup in there for the coffee. And she bought those and then she brought them to the church to, for them to be used. And she might as well have given, uh, she might as well have given me a million dollars for the impact that that had on me in terms of uh, trying to do what I was trying to do in, uh, and knowing as little as I, as I did. And, uh, and I looked at that and I said, this is someone who it, it gets what's trying to happen here. And of course, people did that in a lot of different ways, but that, that impacted me. And uh, it, it's not about the money. It's about the heart, and it's about what gets communicated. That's the value in it. And so he sees uh, this heart that he recognizes in himself, in this, this woman, in, in her uh, love uh, for, uh, for the Lord. And so Jesus witnesses this, and so he said, and we know from Matthew's Gospel of this account, that uh, who he said this to was to the disciples. And uh, so he's going to make it a teachable movement, uh, a teachable moment rather. And the word that is uh, uh, used here for when he calls them together, at least in Matthew's gospel, uh, as he puts it, is that he calls them together excitedly uh, to explain what it is that he's just uh, seen. Again, his heart. Uh, elated over what he's just seen in this woman. And he said, truly, I say to you that this poor woman has put in more than all. And so when you look at that, uh, clearly all of the uh, rich were putting in gifts into the treasury. Certainly no one was putting in one mite instead of two mites. And so she put in two mites and, and doubled what they were doing. So clearly Jesus measures the size of the gift, not in terms of how we would do it in America, in terms of the amount of the gift, but he obviously has to measure uh, the gift in the giving in a completely different way because her two mites didn't even approach what the rich were putting uh, in there. And of course, what Jesus was talking about and in terms of measuring uh, the gift is the sacrifice that lies uh, uh, behind it. 
and, uh, and, and that's the thing that impacted uh, him. It's easy uh, for someone who is very, very wealthy to give, and it's a significant amount, and God will use it for His kingdom, and it means something to him. And then it's another thing when the giving, whatever the amount might be, moves into our livelihood. It means that we have to say no to something in our life to be able to worship God in this way. And so he goes on to say in verse 4, for all of these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood uh, that she had. And so... Uh, this was uh, the, the level of sacrifice that, that she made in, in giving uh, that, that, uh, that offering. Now, uh, related to um, the, uh, this area of giving related to the church, and I'm so glad to be a, a little bit of an older man now at, at this point in time, and, um, uh, and for people to know me well enough, that I'm certainly not going to uh, dwell on this subject because we're about to do uh, an offering at the end of the service. So you can uh, know that your wallet and, uh, and your heart and your mind are si safe. I'm not going to lay any kind of a guilt trip on anyone because I believe it is an absolute privilege to be able to give to God. Um, and I've mentioned it before, but imagine being a Christian in this world if God did not give us that privilege, if, if He said every penny that you earn in the course of your life, you have to spend it either on yourself or spend it on something that's going to burn eternally here, but you cannot give toward what is eternal or toward my kingdom. I mean, what, to have that shut off from us as Christians would be devastating. It would be an awful, awful thing. And the reason it would be is because we, we recognize how important it is to our Christian life what it is to be able to uh, invest, so to speak, or to give toward what God is doing in the world that is eternal and this additional way that He gives us to be able to worship Him. In other words, all the different ways that He gives us to worship Him we want to, uh, there's enough worship in our heart that we want to give to God, and it takes all the different ways to do that, and we wouldn't want one of them taken away uh, from us. And that includes uh, the, the area uh, of, uh, of giving. And so here is this, uh, this picture of this giving, and I noticed that there was a treasury uh, located there associated with, uh, with the temple. Uh, Jesus didn't say there was anything wrong with that. God isn't apologetic, not in one way, related to the fact that from the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that giving to God is a part of the life of every child of God. He's not uh, embarrassed by that uh, at all and in, in any way. And so, uh, uh, because He knows that it, it accomplishes far more in us by giving to Him and uh, His work than ever the dollar amount that we might uh, give to Him. Think about uh, how easy it would be for God to uh, support His work in the world, so to speak, um, uh, by just um, uh, 
once a year, one Sunday a year, dropping diamonds from the sky. Or gold bullion, where you'd have to live underground or whatever. But I mean, it would just be effortless. I, I have no doubt that one day when we're in heaven, before there's the uh, dissolving of the heavens and the earth and the creation of a new heaven and an earth, that there will be planets out there that are solid diamonds or something even more valuable. This is, this is nothing to him in terms of, uh, of how easily he could support things. And yet, he has chosen to do it uh, this way. And I think there are reasons for it. Uh, one of the reasons that is, is that every time we give to God, as I've mentioned before, not even that long ago in this gospel, we give away a little bit of our selfishness, a little bit of our self-centeredness. That's why even when we give to God and we can sometimes have the thought, well, that means I'm not going to be able to have this physical thing as a result of doing this, it still feels right. Um, it's still a good feeling to be able to do that. It feels right within, uh, within our uh, within our spirit. We have a lot of selfishness to give away, especially in this culture, and that's why we feel a little bit freer from money as, as we give to the Lord. Every time we give, it's an acknowledgement that everything that we have has come from God. And that's a valuable reminder. So it isn't just, okay, and today we have the conveniences of giving online and just having it set up where it comes right out of the checking account and all of that. But, it, but there should still be on a weekly basis in, in terms of giving, and that's why um, in the morning services when we acknowledge uh, the, the giving in this way uh, to the Lord, that we take time in the service to do that. And that recognition, God, I give back to you with the recognition that everything I have has come from you. Every single thing. And this is an expression of my acknowledgement uh, of that. Every time we give, there's a fresh realization that my security is not in my money, but it, it, it's in the Lord. And every time I give, it, it, there is that I'm planting a little bit more of my heart in heaven. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, uh, there will your heart be uh, also. And when you put these kind of things together that are there uh, in terms of giving, all of these things vastly outweigh any amount of money that we would, uh, we would give uh, to, uh, to God. And so God, uh, Jesus watches all of this and, uh, and it is a blessing uh, to Him as He sees it. And uh, so the size of the gift is, is not determined by the size of it, but by the sacrifice that is represented uh, there. I do notice that Jesus is not concerned that she's going to starve to death. Uh, she, does, he, she gives out of her livelihood. She gives into that place within her life. He doesn't say, hope, oh, stop everything, and uh, let's get those two uh, widow's mites out of there and uh, back into her hands, anything like that. He knows that anyone that uh, gives in that way, God is going to take care uh, of the needs of, of that kind of people. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, all these other things that we worry about, food and clothing in life, shelter, uh, will be added uh, unto you. I do think as well that this passage teaches us that uh, no gift is insignificant to God. So the Bible does teach from Old Testament covenant then into the New Testament 
um, it does teach that every Christian is to give something to God of a financial uh, nature. And uh, so nobody is excluded uh, from, uh, from that. So everybody is to do something. And there can be that tendency where we would talk ourselves out of it and say, what is $5? What difference is that going to make? What is what $25? What difference is that going to make? And we just look at it and, and we say, this is insignificant in the eyes of God because we're viewing it the way that the culture views it or the way that we view it. Uh, instead of the, the sacrifice that's represented behind it. It's not the amount. It is, it is what we're expressing on the part of our heart toward God uh, in, in giving to uh, His work. And so this beautiful little portrait related to giving, and the Lord wants us to be uh, clear about that and uh, really timeless truths found in it. Then in verse 5, Jesus uh, heads into what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And uh, it's known as the Olivet Discourse because it was a teaching that Jesus gives, uh, gave on the Mount of Olives, uh, as we're told there in uh, the, the Gospel according uh, to uh, Matthew. And He gives this Olivet Discourse uh, prior to His crucifixion. Luke's Gospel here provides us with a very uh, compressed, uh, uh, condensed version of that Olivet Discourse that's recorded in Matthew. Matthew's Gospel uh, covers it in two chapters, chapters 24 and chapters uh, 25. And so, uh, as we go through this and as I interpret what is written here, I am doing so from uh, the larger uh, 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 record of, uh, of the Olivet Discourse that is found uh, in Matthew. And so that's, that's what's going on in case you look at it and, and, uh, and say, well, what about this or what about that? I'd encourage you to go back to, uh, to Matthew's Gospel and, uh, for the, the clearest handling of the subject. It is very important for us as Christians to realize that when we read the Scriptures, there are two very distinct end-time scenarios that are described in the Scriptures. So often we think that there's only one end-time scenario, the end-time scenario of the church, of Christians. But that's not, what there is. that's not the only one that's there. There are two end-time scenarios that are described in the Scriptures, whether in Old Testament prophecies or in the New Testament. And the first one uh, is the, uh, the scenario that has to do with the church. It has to do with Christians. So you have the rapture, you have heaven, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, you have Jesus returning at His second coming, ruling and reigning with Him then in that millennial kingdom, and then uh, serving uh, with Him during that reign, and then everything giving way to a new heaven and uh, a new earth. And then there's an end-time scenario that has to do with the Jews as a people. There's an end-time scenario for the Jews because God is not yet done with the Jews and uh, as a people, and an end-time scenario related to the Christians. And so the end-time scenario that has to do uh, with the Jews as a people, there's the rejection of Jesus. It then leaves them vulnerable for the deception of the Antichrist. 
uh, their rebuilding of their temple, the abomination that causes desolation at the halfway point of the tribulation period. Their eyes are open. They run for their lives out of the city uh, of, of Jerusalem. And then all of the other events that constitute the seven-year tribulation period that are recorded in uh, Revelation chapter 6 and through chapters 19 and, uh, and uh, many of the Jews coming to recognize Jesus as their Messiah during that tribulation period, Jesus' second coming, and then those believing survivors among the Jews entering into Jesus' second coming into the kingdom age. And both of them are happening simultaneously in the world uh, today, but each of them is very, very different. And differentiating between which prophecies apply to which group isn't always easy to do. And that's why there's different uh, ideas and different views related to all of this uh, among Christians. But I don't think uh, anyone will have any hope at all of uh, making sense of, uh, of any of this if we don't at least know that there are two parallel uh, but very different things happening at the same time. And if we put the church into the prophetic end-time scenario of the Jews, we will have no hope of making sense uh, of, of, of biblical prophecy, not only related to the Olivet Discourse, but any of the other passages in the Bible that inform us on, on this subject. And so Jesus begins uh, the context of the sermon, the, the discourse that He gives there, uh, as Luke tells us in verse 5, and as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and, dona uh, and donations. And so here are the disciples. They begin to tell Jesus about, look at how beautiful the temple is. Look at how stable and sturdy it looks like. And you say, what in the world are they uh, talking about here? Why would they... This, this is like pulling a rabbit out of your hat. What's the connection here? But if you turn back uh, to chapter uh, 19 and uh, uh, to uh, uh, verse 44, Jesus following his uh, triumphant entry, triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then weeping over the city, he said, uh, uh, spoke about the fact that the city will be leveled, your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Matthew's Gospel uh, puts uh, Jesus' lament in this way, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chick un chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And they would have understood his reference to their house to be uh, the temple in Jerusalem, for I say to you, uh, you will see me uh, no more because he who comes, uh, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus laments. He talks about not one stone being left upon, not only the buildings in Jerusalem, but the temple um, it, it, itself. And so referring to the destruction that was going to happen to the city of Jerusalem and the temple when the uh, uh, three or four 
Roman legions then came into the city and completely devastated it in 70 A, uh, AD. And so here they are. Uh, it isn't like they, they're looking and saying, well, Jesus doesn't seem to understand uh, the temple and how permanent it's, it's been built here by Herod and how amazing it is. And so they, they start to talk about the beauty of the temple to try and give him a chance to kind of backtrack from what he had said about the temple and that the destruction will be so great that not one stone will be left uh, upon uh, another. And, uh, and far from backtracking on it at all, uh, Jesus then goes on to say in verse 6, these things which you see, speaking of the temple that they were pointing him to, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The destruction of the temple in 70 uh, AD. Uh, the Jews began several years earlier. They began a, a revolution uh, against the Roman Empire after uh, several very serious provocations by, uh, by Rome within their land that they considered to be uh, desecrations. And, uh, and so these Roman legions were sent into Israel and one by one they began to take the land back for Rome. And finally, that last kind of gathering, great gathering of Jews, they came into the city of Jerusalem, and this was where they were going to make their last stand against Rome. And Rome began the siege, began the onslaught. The Jews were very, very good at guerrilla warfare, and this was a long, bloody uh, battle of attrition. So many Roman soldiers were killed, as well as Jewish people, so that by the time... Rome broke through the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, so many of these soldiers had uh, fellow colleagues that had been died, that had, be, had been killed, that they were just uh, livid over what had happened here. It's interesting that the Roman uh, general Titus, he pleaded with the Jewish people. He pleaded with the rulers. Josephus writes all about it. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Uh, who went over to the Roman side on things. And in fact, I believe in this, in this very uh, rebellion against Rome. He's one of the leaders of the rebels among the Jews. And he switched sides in order to save his life. But he, he records all of this. And Titus did not want to destroy the temple. He, did, he wanted it to be preserved. He realized that this would be uh, this, this would be something terrible for the Jews. And he pleaded with them to surrender. They didn't surrender. And by the time the Romans broke into the streets of Jerusalem and then uh, set fire to the temple uh, there, uh, uh, even against Titus's orders, soldiers did. People were huddled inside of the temple and it burned to the ground and it burned so hot that the gold that was in the temple went down into the cracks of the stones and... The stones were knocked uh, over in order to retrieve the gold and uh, in for sh certainly a reason for it, but then also just the rage of the Roman soldiers. It was just like, this is what you have done to us. This is the symbol of your religion. This is the symbol of your rebellion. This is your last stand, and we're not going to leave one stone left upon it. And so they destroyed the temple exactly as Jesus had said that, that uh, would happen. 
uh, in, in uh, following uh, them as they're saying, look how stable all of this looks. Look how stable the temple looks. That could never happen. You want to retract your view related to this. Uh, the temple had been uh, earlier than this. Um, the Greeks had conquered Jerusalem and they had taken over the temple and they just set it up as a place to worship their gods, but they never destroyed the temple. So it was inconceivable that the temple would, would be destroyed. And yet, when we, go to when we go to Jerusalem as a trip to Israel, it's one of the most amazing things to be sitting there on the Mount of Olives and looking across to the Temple Mount and where the Jewish temple once sat and, uh, and you would think would never be destroyed, it is just flat stone and ground. And the idea is, as you look at it and as you witness it as a Christian, the real, what it's communicating to us, its current state is that just as surely as Jesus' prophecy that that temple would be destroyed to that degree and on that level came to pass, so too everything that follows in this Olivet Discourse will come to pass uh, as well. And so Jesus, He doubles down on what it is that He's uh, communicating here. And so the disciples seem to understand that. And so they then posed questions to Him related to this. So they asked Him saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? When is this going to happen? That's a great question. It's one we might have posed. And what sign will, will there be that these things are about to take uh, place? And so they pose two questions to Jesus. Matthew's Gospel provides us, I think, greater, greater clarity uh, where the question is also included, uh, 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 it, it, it enlarged upon uh, where Jesus declare, they ask of Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? It appears in their thinking where Jesus talks about this kind of an ultimate destruction of the temple at that time, that the only way that that could happen is by some cataclysmic event, that it must be associated with some great uh, work of God, maybe something associated with Jesus's uh, second coming, the end of the current uh, age, then giving way to uh, the millennial kingdom. And so Jesus proceeds then to answer their three questions here as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel also here uh, in Luke. And Jesus' response um, to question number one uh, here recorded in Luke's Gospel deals uh, with the physical destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in, in 70 A.D. And in reading the prophecy Jesus gives from all three Gospels, it's clear that, that this destruction of the temple is to be a type or a shadow of the destruction that would come upon the world in, in its entirety uh, during the Great Tribulation. And so the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., uh, by the Romans. It can't be the, the fulfillment of much of what Jesus prophesies here uh, in, in the, the Olivet Discourse, certainly in what Jesus uh, uh, preaches in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. The only thing that can match uh, this Olivet Discourse in its entirety uh, is the description of the end of the age, uh, Jesus' second coming as it's described in in Revelation, Daniel, and elsewhere in the Bible. 
And so here, like in Matthew's Gospel, Luke focuses on uh, Jesus' response to the uh, final two of their three questions, focusing on the events that will immediately precede Jesus' second coming and the end of the age, which will then give way uh, to the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so what Jesus describes here is what we would refer to as the seven-year tribulation uh, period, when God pours His judgment out upon the world in a complete rebellion that is in complete rebellion against Him and, and His offer of salvation through Jesus. So the marks of, uh, of the condition of the world uh, prior, uh, as this tribulation period is approaching, uh, prior to the rapture of the church, what Matthew describes as birth pangs are recorded here in verses 8 and 9. And he said, uh, take heed that you uh, are not deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am He, they'll claim to be the Messiah, and the time has uh, drawn near, therefore do not go uh, after them. There'll be great spiritual deception that will mark uh, the end of the age prior to uh, these end times events. Of course, as the condition of the world gets worse and worse, people will be more and more desperate for an answer, for a hope, and so, uh, but not wanting the hope that's found in Christ, they will fall prey to all of these false teachers that will tell them things that they uh, want to hear. Uh, here he talks about this spiritual deception before he ever gets to earthquakes or he ever gets to famine and disease and all of these things because the greatest danger to anyone is spiritual deception because the consequences of that uh, are eternal. And the consequences of the others, serious as, as they are, uh, they, are, they are only temporal. And then he warned, but when you he hear of wars and, and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must uh, come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. So there's the birth pangs. As in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us that when we see these birth pangs, that we're not to be troubled. Uh, the world uh, unraveling, the world becoming more and more dangerous place, uh, more and more fragile before our eyes. He's saying, uh, he, he told us, and Matthew tells us here, not to be terrified uh, by that because we will, as Christians, recognize that these things, as, as Matthew puts it, are birth pangs that are moving into the final phase of human history as God has ordained it. And, of course, a birth pang is a contraction, and a contraction is, is a, a part of a birth. And as, as difficult as the contractions are, the mother knows, the father knows as a witness from a much safer uh, place or easier place, but everybody knows that as bad as these contractions are, there is a birth at the end of this and something wonderful is birthed into uh, existence. And so we see these things going on, and we don't as Christians look at the world that we live in today and uh, just look at the events and, and then fail to realize that no, these are contractions that are going to bring forth the, the birth of the kingdom of God and the kingdom age into human history, ultimately at Jesus' uh, second coming. And, uh, and, and so, the, the perspective that we have, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, I forget, um, but I, am, uh, I have a, 
a subscription to the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle, and um, uh, it's a perfect waste of money. Uh, but I, I, um, I, I grew up on the Chronicle, and uh, you know Herb Cain and all those different kinds of things that were that it once was. And but they made the offer, you know, like 92 weeks for a, a dollar. Not quite like that, but it was a really good deal. And I happen to like the crossword puzzles and the comics. And when the sports that I like are in season, I, I like to keep up with all of that. But it's been an education for me because as I've read it and, and scanned it, but reading it in this whole COVID thing or everything that's going on in the world, I, I, in the whole time that I've, uh, for months now, that I've been receiving it, there isn't, there isn't one hopeful article in the whole thing. They, they must be uh, in the pharmaceutical industry as well. And the idea is just to depress people to death, and that's where they make their money, no longer in advertising. They're diversified. You see the conspiracy thing? I'm just kidding on all of that, but I'm joking. But I thought, if you read this and you didn't understand what Jesus has said here, you have no hope. All of these problems, COVID, which they've been on, uh, you know, for all of this time, for a year, and it's the end of the world, and it's this, and be sure to do this, and all of these things, and, and on top of all of the other problems uh, in, in the world, I mean, you wouldn't go outside. Uh, you, 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 your heart would absolutely sink. And then it, 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 uh, it killed me about three weeks ago because they ran a big uh, front page article on how hard it is now um, for uh, people to leave their homes and come out into public in the light of COVID. And I thought to myself, you scared them to death for a year. You terrified them for a year. You gave no balance to anything that you said, and then now you're going to write an article, uh, you know, over the problem of what it is that you created. But it just reminds us of this, how invaluable it is for us, and how we don't even realize it's happening for us as Christians as we process the problems of the world around us, the dangers of the world around us, and for us to know this is not the end. These are the birth pangs. Take yourself out of, you know, don't cease to be a Christian, but I mean, put yourself in the shoes of other people and, and think about how desperate you would be if all of your hope was in this world and in the leaders of this world who have no interest in what you have to say, no interest in common sense, and the problems that are heaped one upon the other, and that was all, everything was, uh, the whole bet was on that, where you'd be terrified. And, but he warns us not to be terrified, because we read the newspaper, we watch the news, and all of it is an ongoing prophecy update uh, for us. And then there's that first word in verse 10, then he said, and now Jesus moves uh, formally here uh, into uh, the, the great tribulation in, in describing after these birth pangs. Then he said, nation will rise against nation 
and, and so we see that as one of the early seals in the book of Revelation, the, the warfare, the violence that breaks out in the world, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence, and there'll be fearful signs and great sights and great signs from heaven. And so, speaking about the seal judgments, the bold judgments, the trumpet judgments that are in the Revelation. And it's a uh, just really a two-verse encapsulation of the horror uh, of, of those judgments. And then uh, he begins to speak about the things that are going to characterize the, uh, the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. But before all these things, uh, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues in prison. So here it's talking about Jews. And, uh, and as they come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period, you will be brought uh, before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out uh, for you as a test occasion for testimony, and therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate uh, beforehand what you will answer when you'll be brought uh, before uh, uh, before these governing forces and certainly the Antichrist after the abomination that causes desolation. The Jews uh, today uh, look uh, for the identification of their Messiah. Many of them do, that, and they say, He will be the one that will allow us to rebuild our temple. And that's what the Antichrist will be, do. They will be fooled by the Antichrist until he allows them in the, in the tribulation period to rebuild their temple. And once it's all finished, uh, then at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year tribulation, he goes into the Holy of Holies, he sits down, he declares himself to be God, and demands to be worshipped as God. Jesus calls it the abomination that causes desolation, and he warns the Jews, when you see this, run for your life. And so they do. The light goes on that this isn't the Messiah, and for many of them that Jesus is the Messiah. They run for their life, and a great persecution uh, flows out uh, against, uh, against the Jews as, as the devil who is behind the Antichrist tries to destroy them. And, and uh, Jesus said, uh, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put uh, some of you to death, and you will be hated uh, by all uh, for my name's sake. And then he says, but not a hair of your head uh, will be lost. And so uh, here, the idea that nothing's going to be done to them apart from uh, God's sovereignty, apart from God's purposes uh, in, in their lives, and uh, if they are martyred, then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And by your patience, uh, possess your souls. In other words, uh, as Matthew puts it, he in, who endures to the end shall be saved. And so these tribulation saints that endure to the end of the tribulation will be physically delivered from this trouble and persecution at Jesus' second coming. The church in, in a pre-tribulation rapture a church will be removed before the tribulation period and uh, the, the seven years of it. 
because the Bible teaches that we are not appointed unto God's wrath. And the breaking of that first seal in the revelation of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 6, it constitutes the wrath of God. We can't be here for the wrath uh, of God. And so we will be in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus during that seven years, but many, many people will become saved during that seven-year uh, period. And uh, as the angelic beings are declaring the gospel, as, uh, as the two witnesses are declaring the gospel in Jerusalem, and, uh, and then the friends and family members that we've spoken to about all of this, and they think we're nuts. And, uh, but uh, when the day happens, uh, they won't think we're so crazy or that the Bible was so crazy um, after all. And so that, uh, that encouragement to persevere to the end. Now, a special trouble will uh, come to Jerusalem, Jesus declares in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And then let those who are in Judea fly, uh, flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are uh, in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land uh, and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the, the edge of the sword and be led away uh, captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by uh, Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are, are uh, fulfilled. And so the near fulfillment of, of this prophecy, uh, 70 A.D., when the Roman general, again Titus, his armies, they encircled Jerusalem, put down that, that rebellion, uh, and it resulted in the destruction of that time. And uh, we're told over a million Jews died in Jerusalem alone in that, that siege and that, that battle. The far fulfillment for this will occur at the time of the abomination that causes uh, desolation and, uh, and, uh, uh, and what the Bible describes there in terms of what the Antichrist will, uh, will do there and, um, and the, the, uh, the Antichrist then turning on the Jews and this terrible, terrible slaughter uh, of the Jews and the return of Jerusalem into Gentile uh, con uh, control. And so the, both the result of the near and the far uh, uh, fulfillment results in a, a terrible slaughter of the Jews and, and uh, the return of Jerusalem into Gentile control. The times uh, of the Gentiles' dominion over Jerusalem actually began when the Babylonians took the city, they took the nation into captivity in uh, 586 B.C., and, uh, and then, and of course, in 1948, uh, Israel and the Jewish people uh, regained their homeland and established their own presence there uh, in the world, in, in the nation of Israel. But here uh, we're told that Jerusalem is going to fall under Gentile dominion during the tribulation period uh, just before uh, Jesus returns to restore Jerusalem and uh, the restoration uh, Jesus spoke of uh, of next uh, here. 
in, uh, in, in the passage. And so he speaks of now of the end of the age and of his second coming. And there will be signs in the, uh, in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them uh, from uh, fear and the, and the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You ever want to just be thankful on a, on a bad day? Uh, just go and read Revelation chapter 6 uh, through 19 and say, I'm not going to be here for this. That, that is going to be, it won't be a movie. It's going to be real on the face of the earth. And when we have battles and these kind of things that occur today and you know, uh, uh, 30 people lose their life in a bombing in some place in the world and all, and the whole world is, is mortified by that, and we should be mortified by that. But these numbers are going to be staggering in terms of what's going to happen uh, in, in uh, uh, the world. Men's hearts are going to fail them for fear. That's a, um, you won't need to go and get a, a heart exam. Uh, the circumstances of life will uh, be a, a great enough of, of a heart uh, exam. And so he says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and great uh, glory. Remember Pastor Greg Laurie, the, the joke was, and then you'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and Greg Laurie. Uh, Greg Laurie will be coming, uh, but that's not how it reads. Uh, and, uh, but it's a pretty good take, actually, for him to... So, but great glory. And now when these things begin to happen, uh, everything, the birth pangs all the way through, when they begin uh, to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption, that is uh, Jesus, is the rapture of the church, draws nigh. And uh, then... Uh, Jesus spoke to them a parable, the parable of the fig tree. And he said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. And when they're already budding and you see and know for yourself then that summer is now near. And so you also, when you see these things happening, uh, the birth pangs, know that the kingdom of God is near. And verily, verily, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass until all things uh, 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 take place. In other words, the people that are on the earth that see uh, these birth pangs, see the, uh, the events of the great tribulation, uh, they, that generation will not pass away till all these things take place, of course, in a period of, of, of seven years. And Jesus said, heaven and earth uh, will pass away, and it will, but my words will by no means pass away. That's quite a thing for Jesus to say. Anything that he would say is going to come to pass, is going to pa come to pass. But here he speaks to us as his people and says, don't bet against this. I'm telling you, this is going to be how human history is, is going to end. And then there, uh, the great question that all of this raises for us, uh, and, uh, so that all of this isn't like just kind of the study of prophecy or the fascination of, of the study of end times, but 
All of it's intended to have a practical impact upon our lives as Christians. And so Jesus said, here's the practical impact it should have upon our daily lives as Christians. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, uh, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that that day come upon you unexpectedly. So no one wants to be found engaged in uh, drunkenness or carousing or the cares of this world or any other sin at the time uh, of the rapture. And so he's telling us here that we're to be living a different kind of life as we're waiting for uh, all of this to occur, a life of watching and waiting. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. It isn't going to, shouldn't take us by surprise, but this will take the world completely by surprise. And then Jesus says, watch therefore. Be looking, again, reading the signs of the times, uh, not to wring our hands, but to recognize that uh, Jesus' plan is unfolding. Watch therefore, and then very importantly, Pray always, and, and prayer brings perspective to us in times of, of, of fear. And we look at the world and we see how many problems are, are mounting upon, one upon the other. And so pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of uh, God. And so praying that with the reminder that uh, our faith in Jesus is the guarantee that we're not appointed unto wrath, the reminding of ourselves that we will not be here during the great tribulation, uh, during the tribulation period at all, as that wrath of God is, is poured out upon uh, the world. I do, I do like that word, uh, worthy to escape. That word escape is um, circled in my Bible, and uh, you don't have to circle it in yours. But so often people will say to someone like me who believes in a pre-tribulation rapture, and uh, they'll say, oh, you're, you're just trying to take the easy way out. You're just trying to escape the, the tribulation period. You better believe I'm trying to escape the tribulation period. This is no joke. And he, I mean, he, okay, I see the 144,000 are sealed and all of this kind of thing, but if you, you think you're going to go in as like some spiritual uh, Navy SEAL and be a big tough guy in the Great Tribulation, you're kidding yourself. You don't want to be there. Nobody will want to be there. Not even the people that are there will want to be there. No, I don't mind escaping at all. I don't think I'm a wimp, but I don't think, I, I don't think I'm a tough guy either. But I, uh, but I have no interest in being on, in this world uh, when all of that uh, unfolds. And so, yes, uh, I want uh, to pray and, uh, that I might be counted uh, worthy to escape these things in, in the blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm thankful uh, that we will. And in the daytime, here is, it rounds out the chapter just talking about Jesus' activities in Jerusalem, prior, the, the final three days before His crucifixion. In the daytime, He was teaching in the temple. At night, He would go out and stay on the mountain called Olivet. He would cross the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. The final week of His life, He didn't spend in, uh, one night in Jerusalem. He went over and, and stayed on the Mount of Olives. 
in the evenings and nighttime. And then early in the morning, he would return uh, to teach again at the temple. And all the people came to hear, uh, to hear him in the temple. They came to him in the temple to hear him. So uh, the, now we, we move very, very close to the cross related to that as we would head into uh, chapter 22 next time. I can't tell you when I was a I was a boy, I was raised for a time in the church that was called Valley Bible Chapel in Napa, California, and uh, they were into prophecy in that church, and they believed in the Lord's return, they believed in watching the sign, you know, for signs and, and birth pangs and all way back then, and that got invested in my life as, as a Christian, and ever since then, in, in, it got invested in my life as a young person and ever since then been able to process the world in this way. And again, just to say hallelujah to the Lord tonight. Uh, I, I, I don't know that I would be seated and clothed in my right mind in a world like this apart from the hope that is found in Christ, our relationship with Him and the knowledge that he is in control not only of human history, but He's in control of our lives as well. As well. We are so rich because of the, the revelation of biblical prophecy in the Scripture as Christians. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this instruction concerning giving. We know that You love cheerful givers and You don't like anything to be done by constraint. And we thank You for all the different ways that You have given us to worship You in this Christian life. And we thank You tonight for Your instruction in this area that is so important to You and thus important to us. And again, we thank You for the perspective, what You do in our lives by Your Holy Spirit through the knowledge of Scripture as we process life and what looks very much like the end of the age. Thank You for being our God. Thank You that You win. Thank You that all of Your promises are going to be yea and amen to us uh, every step of the way through all of it. We thank You, Lord, that our anchor holds within the veil. We thank You for the sureness of the foundation that is under our feet in Christ and and in Your Word. We thank You for this specific portion of the Christian life that You have given to us in our Savior. And we thank You in His name. In Jesus' name, Amen.